this is Winton Higgins giving the first of four talks on a workshop in Wellington, New Zealand in February 2013. Okay, so... Um this is a workshop called Making the Most of Being Human. By the end of the weekend, you might want to change that a bit to Making the Most of the Human Condition, because I guess that's the uh, idea I'm working towards. And this first talk is, um, in the beginning was the human condition, the Buddha's new way to work with it. Uh, so we're here on a secular Buddhist workshop and um, I'm just wondering how many of you were there last night talking about... Oh, okay, quite a few. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll just briefly recap what is involved in this idea of secular Buddhism. Um, first of all, secular Buddhism is not a school of Buddhism, it's, uh, it's a movement, a, a tendency, if you like. Uh, it's quite diverse, there's no orthodoxy, and um, it has really been going for about the last 20 years without anyone noticing. Uh, just uh, ways in which um, Westerners have uh, changed the way they do things from the way they've been taught by uh, Asian forerunners or even Asian teachers. Uh, the way new emphases have uh, come to prominence and old ones have fallen away. And just uh, different ways of doing things, different ways of uh, associating with each other, different ways of doing Sangha, as uh, it's called in the Buddhist uh, tradition, that is community, spiritual community, the community of those who are practicing the path. So all these sort of changes were coming about and then only a very few years ago, um, secular Buddhism uh, began to be um, uh, yeah, began to be talked about. And uh, so it's really just covering these changes which um, uh, indicate that secular Buddhism is trying to bring a certain coherence to um, the way in which Buddhism manifests in the Western world among Westerners. I mean, the vast majority of Buddhist practitioners in the West are not Westerners. They're, um, they're usually diasporas from coming from Buddhist countries who've got a completely different other agenda for how they do their Buddhism. Uh, so let's just uh, talk about secularity, and this is uh, this will be a bit of a recap from last night. Uh, secularity comes from, or secular, all those forms of uh, the word secular, come from a Latin root word, saculum, which originally meant a human lifespan, uh, and came to mean an age or century. So uh, what is the term secular really refers to this world, the concerns of this world, as opposed to otherworldly concerns. 
So this is where the tension arises between the secular and the religious. It's interesting in the Catholic Church uh, for many centuries, the uh, professionals, you know, the, the priests and monks and nuns, have been divided between the secular and the religious. And the secular are those who um, minister to the lay people and therefore um, have to deal at least vicariously with the concerns of the world, the concerns of families, of kids, of poverty, um, of um, all that stuff that goes on in our lives. Whereas the religious were contemplatives and people who were uh, thinking of higher things and really quite quarantined from uh, from the world. So it's an interesting way to think about the secular and religious because it makes the point that secularity is not the opposite of religion. It is um, it, in, indeed it uh, probably, certainly I would argue, comes out of uh, religious development and religious reform. Last night I mentioned Charles Taylor's wonderful book uh, a Secular Age, which came out in 2007. Uh, he's, a, he's a philosopher, but he's a delight to read. And um, he's arguing, basically, that secularity is, began arising within Western Christianity in the last 700 years. So it's been a very uh, slow burn development out of uh, a world of superstition, a world of worshipping idols and relics and so forth, and um, magical incantations and all that sort of thing. So uh, secularity is very much connected with the, the rise of modernity. If you want to think about this in sociological terms, you can think of Max Weber's famous uh, comment that modernity is about the rationalisation and disenchantment of the world. And this enchantment means, of course, getting away from enchanted reality constructs. You know, believing there really are fairies at the bottom of the garden, there really are saints up there looking after us or not looking after us if we don't keep, you know, um, prodding them to do so, uh, and so forth. So the um, so with secularity goes this this world is a this worldliness and a disenchantment uh, in that sense of getting away from magical thinking. And it's also very much connected with uh, the idea of being in a specific situation, being in a, a particular time in history and in a particular culture. Because our culture, culture is... Uh, uh, somewhat like um, the operating systems in our computers. You know, we, all human beings have got essentially the same uh, neurological um, hardware, the brains and nervous systems, but um, how they work, what we can do with them, really depends upon uh, the culture that gives us language, that gives us uh, a conception of who we are and what's going on. Um, now, one of the um, implications of secularity is that um, 
things that um, great, uh, great founders of traditions, great uh, religious uh, pioneers have said, are not uh, are not timeless truths. This is a huge uh, issue in religious life. The idea, well, you know, if um, if the Buddha said all X or Y, then that's got to be true. It's got to be true in all times and all places. Um, so, uh, what, one of the great geniuses who debunked this was a New Zealander called, called J.G.A. Pocock, uh, who is still alive, actually. He must be incredibly old. Uh, but he, uh, he lives in Cambridge, in England. Uh, but he developed a thing called the, the Contextualist or Cambridge School of History, which um, made a virtue of looking out, looking at, you know, very famous textual interventions, and seeing them at precisely as interventions in particular places, in particular times, in particular circumstances. So, uh, getting right away from the idea that they are kind of utterances of timeless truths. So, in order to understand what the Buddha said or what Jesus said, um, or you know uh, what the sort of people that that Pocock was particularly concerned with, like Harrington and various of the 16th, 17th century English radicals, um, you've got to actually look at. Uh, the circumstances in which they were intervening. Who, who were they talking to? Why were they saying these things? Uh, why was it important to have get this out on the table at that time? And when we read uh, the Buddha's teaching, the earliest versions of it, we can see that that's precisely what was happening. He was always talking to someone in particular. He'd, all, he'd been asked a particular question. He'd been presented with somebody's particular conundrum. And uh, so his teachings were performance pieces. They were um, as if the, the Dharma, his teaching was a kind of a, a matrix. Someone would ask him a question, he'd dive in and come up with an answer. Right. The answers were generally consistent, but they were always situational. They were always addressing a context. Um, and it's rather they're, they're silly for later uh, generations of Buddhists then to say, oh, but the Buddha said this or the Buddha said that, without looking at the context. Um, so um, the other point that I think is important to make here is about interpretation of, uh, of um, teachings, of original teachings, which eventually become texts. I mean, it's worth remembering, for instance, that the Buddha didn't write anything down. As far as we know, Jesus didn't write anything down. The Buddha was probably illiterate, and uh, Jesus probably was too. So um, they were simply speaking, and they were speaking to particular people in a particular language. We don't even know what dialect the Buddha spoke. But his, uh, the earliest uh, rec rec sort of records 
of what is said are written in a language called Pali. The Pali is an artificial language, it was never a street language, uh, which was probably very close to the Indic dialect that, that the Buddha himself spoke. But even though this is the earliest, you know, call it the original teaching of the Buddha, we're already looking at a translation. So, um, and, and as, as these teachings have been handed down from generation to generation, of course they eventually get written down, the, the uh, Buddha's teachings were written down about three centuries after his death, for the very first time. Uh, until then, they were an oral tradition that was chanted. That was the way of recording it. It's actually quite a good way to preserve an oral tradition because if everyone's chanting and someone gets it wrong, <laughs> the other people say, hey, that's not right. You know, uh, and so there's a sort of self-correcting uh, mechanism going on there. But all, all the same, uh, clearly these teachings passed into other hands and uh, heavily institutionalised hands within a, quite a short space of time. And so uh, they, a certain spin was put on them to support the... the um, to, to support the discipline of the institution, to support its interests and, and its needs. So um, these days we're highly aware of these issues because of the rise of a um, uh, particular discipline called hermeneutics. And uh, hermeneutics is all about interpretation. So uh, if we get away from the idea that as soon as the Buddha opened his mouth, timeless truths emerged that had nothing to do with the context in which uh, he was saying things. If we get away from that whole, uh, that whole kind of magic thinking around um, divine utterances, divine revelations, etc., and we follow Pocock in looking at contexts, then the next, the next issue that arises is the one of interpretation. You know, if we look at the context in which the Buddha said this, what, what actually was he driving at? And if we have a, a sense of what he was driving at in that context, because he was addressing a particular question that had been thrown at him, um, then uh, we could take the next step and say, well, in our own time, how do we work with that? You know, how can we how can we make use of that? And so, what hermeneutics is saying is that interpretation of um, of how of statements, uh, utterances, however canonical they may be, is quite kosher, and more than that. Uh, we can that there is a productiveness going on when we interpret. So uh, there's a particularly interesting philosopher around called uh, at the moment called Gianni Vattamo, whom Stephen Batchelor is very fond of, uh, for good reason I think, uh, because he he talks about the productiveness of interpretation. Or interpretation really is all we've got. We don't know what the Buddha said you know, 2,500 years ago. We've got a fairly good idea, 
But really, um, it, it's hearsay based on hearsay based on hearsay. So we shouldn't feel uh, inhibited about making honest interpretations of what is in the earliest texts. So one of the things that uh, is, um, is very, very obvious about secular Buddhism is a, a strong interest in uh, the earliest teachings of the Buddha with the sense that in order to understand them we have to understand the context in which they arose and, uh, and it's not only our privilege but it's our responsibility to interpret them in a way that is meaningful to us in the present time and in our circumstances and in our own uh, language. So having said that, I want to now go dive into the very first discourse uh, of the Buddha, at least according to the tradition, and reinterpret it for you because um, you know, if you came to Buddhism um, through um, a monastic influenced uh, approach or through a comparative religious approach, you will have a very different idea to the one I'm now going to present to you. Um, now, if you did um, Buddhism 101 in high school or primary school or at uh, uni, you will have learned that uh, the central teaching of Buddhism is something called the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are, number one, life is suffering. Number two, craving is the cause of suffering. Number three, the end of suffering is attainable. And number four is... The Noble Eightfold Path is the way to end suffering. Any, does that sound familiar to you? Okay. Um, up to this point, has this really, um, really coloured your view of what Buddhism is? Yeah. It did initially, but then I went and studied, well... It did until the point at which I joined an insight meditation group and then I got a better interpretation. Right, okay. But it was quite discouraging at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, um, in, the, in the latest uh, volume of uh, a free online journal called Journal of Global Buddhism, Stephen Batchelor does a fantastic job over about 8,000 words of actually uh, reworking the teaching by looking at the Pali text itself and taking it from there. So what we might find is that the Pali text doesn't say anything of the sort of what I've just uh, indicated is, is the conventional version of the Four Noble Truths. So let's look at this, the setting of this teaching. Uh, a bloke called Siddhartha Gautama has, uh, for the last six years, been um, following a well-known path in 
India 2005 years ago in the Gangetic Basin, um, a path of uh, the wandering mendicant, and he's tried a lot of things, including uh, most particularly an ascetic practice, which is a practice of self-torment, of self-denial, uh, you know, living on one grain of rice a day and standing on one leg all day and all this sort of stuff. Um, the basic idea there being that um, to, if one mortifies the body, one frees the spirit. But he figures out that it's actually not true. He finds that out through empirical observation by looking at his own experience. So he tries something else. And that something else leads to uh, a breakthrough. And as a result of that breakthrough, he feels um, his uh, grasp on what it means to be a human being is completely changed. And he has this huge dilemma. He doesn't know whether he should just enjoy this. Um, it's his own achievement, after all. Or whether he should go and try and tell other people about it. The initial problem for him is that he doesn't know how to tell other people about it. He can't even imagine how he would go about doing that. But he, there's a, an, an ethical prompting that this is important. This is something um, I, I really need to try to do. So he finds some of his uh, old mates who've been doing the ascetic practice with him before, uh, but who've now shunned him because he's taken to a life of luxury. In fact, he's, he's eating properly and he's going to bed and sleeping and um, getting a bit of exercise and that sort of thing, you know, real luxury. So, so they've shunned him. And so he thinks, okay, if I can get something through to these dogmatists, uh, I, can, I can actually communicate with anybody. So off he goes. He finds them. Uh, they see him coming. They say, we're not going to talk to him. You know, uh, send him to Coventry. But as he gets closer, they're, they're curious. There seems to be something different. So they, they agree to talk to him and a conversation ensues. Now, we can imagine this would be an extremely robust <laughs> conversation. <laughs> um, a vigorous interchange. And it probably went on for quite some time. There's a, a certain amount of um, uh, evidence that this was such a vigorous and long conversation that even these ascetics had to go off into town and get something to eat. <laughs> so, um, so what we've got is, if you like, the executive summary of what the Buddha, uh, as he was now calling himself, uh, said to them that actually got through. So... Um, what he, the, the way in which the executive summary works is, he says to them, I have discovered a path which uh, avoids two dead ends. So um, this is a, the dead ends are rather interesting. The dead ends are addiction 
to pleasure and sensuality. He's not saying pleasure is a problem. He's saying addiction to it is a problem. Uh, and the other one is addiction to self-punishment. So this is obviously the dead end these five characters have uh, got stuck in. The addiction to self-punishment. I mean, these days, of course, we, you know, we're, we're being good hermeneuticists. What, what would self-punishment look like today? It'd look like beating yourself up. It'd look like depression. Um, it would look, look like all sorts of ways, you know, we've learnt through uh, Protestant proddings uh, to give ourselves a hard time, you know, to uh, deny ourselves things that are actually quite, quite healthy to have or enjoy. So these two dead ends, they're states of stuckness. And um, stuckness is a concept in the Dharma. You can see that Mara, again, this is a, a wonderful uh, insight of uh, Stephen Batchelor's, that Mara, the figure of evil in, in the Dharma, is really a representation of stuckness. So as opposed to that stuckness, he's found this middle way. Uh, and which, by definition, of course, uh, these, these, this middle way is the opposite of stuckness. It's something that allows for flow. It's something that allows for development. And uh, he specifies that the, this, uh, that the middle way is what he is now going to call the Eightfold Path because it has eight aspects and the eight aspects are uh, right or whole or authentic uses this, this Pali word samma which can be translated as uh, authentic as whole as complete uh, it's conventionally translated as right but that is a bit of a problem because if it's right then it's not wrong you know it's that you, we want to get away from those sort of um, binaries to the greatest possible extent. So um, let's call it let's call it authentic. So authentic understanding, uh, thought or an intention, authentic speech. Um, the the Dharma Buddhism is very uh, lays a lot of emphasis on speech and communication. Uh, authentic action, in other words, our ethical way of being in the world. Livelihood, how we um, go about um, earning, our, earning our keep. It's very important, we spend a lot of time doing it, so obviously it's spiritually very important. Effort, how, and these last three are looking specifically at spiritual, the spiritual aspects narrowly defined in our life effort that we're not pushing too hard or we're not going too easy. Notice that um, being putting too little effort in is probably associated with the dead end of addiction to pleasure and uh, going at it too hard is probably uh, associated with this, the, the stuckness of self-punishment or self-denial or self-mortification. 
Uh, and then the second last one is, um, is mindfulness. And the enormous importance that the Dharma places on being aware, of really putting your effort into being aware. And that's why I gave you that meditation instruction at the beginning, that what it's about is being aware. It's not about doing some, following some formula. It's about being aware of what's happening. And finally, mental integration. Uh, this is a really interesting Pali word, samadhi, which is conventionally translated as concentration. But I really think that's um, unhelpful translation because a lot of people associate concentration with tunnel vision and think that that is what meditation is about, sort of forcing the mind to stick to one thing. And um, it's not. It's really about getting. It, it's really about an eff, uh, setting up the conditions in which the mind uh, integrates. And when it integrates strongly, one has the sense that the mind has changed gear. Uh, you get into um, a, a, a quite a, a blissful, very unbumpy state. Okay. So. Um, so that is what the, the path means. Now I want to get back to um, the so-called Four Noble Truths. Because this is really the heart of the matter. The Buddha uses the term Dukkha, which um, our Christian friends brought up last night. Noel. <laughs> Noel, obviously very well read in the problem of Dukkha. Now, uh, dukkha is a Pali word, it's also a Sanskrit word, uh, and it, um, the, the Buddha defined it as, uh, or, or he, I guess he characterised it as birth, ageing, sickness, death, being associated with uh, whom or what we detest or find, un find uncomfortable or not nice to be around and being separated from whom or what we love, what we'd rather be associated with. So we all know these experiences, you know, you work in a workplace, there's someone with a personality disorder uh, that you have to associate with and, it, and it's really a grind. <laughs> um, or, you know, you've got a, a, a loved one who gets a job overseas somewhere and you're separated from her or him. So um, we all know these, uh, these sorts of experiences. And then, of course, there's the general one of not getting what we want. Life is full of frustration. Nothing ever pans out the way we planned it to. <laughs> Uh, or it, you know, certain things that we hope to get turn out to be beyond our reach. And then he says um, the entire psychophysical condition, the, the, uh, the limitedness, the fragility, the vulnerability of being a human being, of being this body and mind. Uh, so this is what Dukkha means. Now, the, if you just take the word dukkha and translate it, you get a number of English um, synonyms. 
which are useful up to a point. Uh, the conventional way of translating dukkha is suffering. Uh, but if you look at the Buddha's list, it's much wider than that. It, it is really looking at the human condition. None of us can avoid any of the things on the Buddha's list. We all get born, uh, we all uh, age, we all get sick, we all die, etc., etc. Um, in Western philosophy, you know, the human condition is often summarised as time, chance, and death. Okay, so time is that we we are, we are time bound creatures. We're not going to be here forever, obviously. Um, chance, there's a, all sorts of stuff can happen. We've got no control over it, uh, and uh, this is what. Um, the, the Greek tradition of the tragic vision is all about, you know. All sorts of stuff's going to happen to us and our job is to deal with it. Not see it, not see it as a problem, but see it as something to be dealt with. You know, this is why the, the tragic hero is somebody who sets out to deal with it, maybe successfully, maybe unsuccessfully, but one asserts one's dignity as a human being by tackling it. And um, you know that's why in in uh, in when those Greek tragedies were performed in the Greek city states, um, people saw them as enormously uplifting, <laughs> because here were human beings, you know, actually asserting their agency in the face of what could be really cruel fate, and that's what being a human being was all about. And the Buddha, is some, I think, is really coming in on exactly that theme uh, as, as the Greek tragic tradition, which, of course, we've continued on uh, in the English language tradition with Shakespeare and so on. So what is the Buddha saying we should do about uh, the human condition? He's saying we should embrace it fully. We should know it fully. It's not a problem. It's our life. <laughs> it's not going to go away as long as we're here. So embrace it. Be like those tragic heroes in, in Greek tragedies or, or uh, Shakespearean tragedies. Of, deal with it. The second one is... Um, uh, the second uh, of these four important things, and by the way, the Buddha never used the word noble truth. Arya Sachana seems to be the Pali word for noble truth, has been added um, since, this, uh, since this teaching was committed to memory. It's not there in the text. The Buddha knew nothing about noble truths. He was saying these are three, four things that you've got to really, really focus on. The second one is arising, samadaya, and he associates this with craving. So as a result of the um, difficulties, if you like, the, the dark side of a human life, we often fall into craving. Craving arises. Uh, you know, we're appalled by the, by the conditions we're actually confronting. 
So we crave another set of conditions. And um, uh, the Buddha points to three particular uh, kinds of craving which can be an unskillful reaction to, uh, to dukkha, to the human condition. One is the craving for sense contact, which of course can be a, a wonderful diversion. Uh, if you're feeling really bad, go out and buy a bar of chocolate. Right. It's really interesting when you look at the statistics for chocolate sales. Um, they actually correlate with um, uh, the economic conjunctures. So a as, as an economy falls into recession, chocolate sales go up. <laughs> and of course there are many, many other forms of, of sensual diversion from our problems <laughs> apart from chocolate. But I, I, think, <laughs> I think chocolate is a is so interesting and has been statistically established. Um, the, uh, another one is craving for, what the Buddha, Buddha calls craving for existence. Now, this craving for existence is craving for existence in particular forms. You know, like uh, fantasising about being fabulously rich or fantasising about being uh, famous and fabulously rich. <laughs> or craving to be uh, some kind of uh, celebrity, craving for, um, for attention, for admiration, for praise, uh, even just the craving to own the latest BMW, you know, that is a craving for existence. And then there is the craving for non-existence. This is the sort of craving for oblivion. Um, if, if I wasn't in New Zealand, I would, I, I would, my classic definition of this is uh, going to football matches. You know, where, where you just com completely, uh, you, you, you just, you, your mind goes blank. Um, and... Um, but there, there are all sorts of ways of doing this. Uh, you know, uh, taking drugs, uh, you know, drinking heavily, holding uh, fanatical views is a great one too. Uh, so on. These are, these are this is craving for non-existence. You're, you're trying to get. You're just trying to become unaware of the terrible condition uh, that you think you have to live in. So, um, what is the Buddha saying here? Let go of it. Let go of craving. If you're fully embracing the human condition, then letting go of craving, um, the, you know, the unskillful way of dealing with the human condition will, uh, will be quite natural. The third one is ceasing. So we've got uh, the human condition arising, particularly arising of craving, and now we've got ceasing. And the, the ceasing refers to um, the ceasing of craving and all the mental agitation that is uh, associated with it. I mean, we, it's pretty obvious that when we go into craving mode, we're inviting even more frustration than we've already got. Um, 
even more turbulence, <coughs> even more um, uh, jarring, con jarring mental conditions. So if we let go of that, um, even for a, a second, if we fully let go of it, the mind goes somewhere else to somewhere uh, really nice. And this is this condition uh, where uh, all the craving falls away. We're fully in the condition we're in, but all the craving has gone out of it. Uh, is a state that the Buddha called Nibbana in Pali, which is Nirvana in Sanskrit. Now, Nirvana isn't a place, uh, and it's nothing permanent. It's something that it's an experience that arises like all other experiences, dependent upon conditions. So if you're on, a, on retreat, for instance, if you're on a seven or a ten day retreat, uh, and things are going reasonably well, they don't have to be going spectacularly well, but they're going reasonably well for you, you will experience this. You'll, there'll be a sudden moment when, hey, what's happening, you know? Uh, or what's not happening is probably the, the, the vital question. Because uh, a, a lot of people experience it, and I certainly do, is, hey, something's not here anymore, you know? It's that kind of sense of radical absence that's, that's really delicious. Uh, and even if it only lasts a couple of seconds, it's happened. Uh, you've, you've caught it. Especially if you, you know, this is why we, one of the reasons why it's important to be aware, because we can miss it if we're not, if we're not alert. Um, so the third, that's the third one, is uh, ceasing. It's not the end of the path. In fact, um, it's the beginning of the path. Once we've had that experience, we then know what the path is all about. We've had a taste of what it's all about. Because this can be then the entry point to serious uh, Dharma practice. Um, so... Um, this is the kernel of the Buddha's teaching. It's the human. It's fully embracing the human condition. It's um, letting go of craving the unskillful reaction against the human condition. It's experiencing that ceasing of the craving uh, and experiencing the peace that it represents. And <clears throat> it's um, then seeing this as the entry point to the path. Now, interestingly, when the Buddha had finished speaking, <clears throat> um, he had um, he got through to these um, four dogmatic former colleagues on the ascetic path, and there were many hallelujahs. And um, Kondanya, who was the leader of the five, then summed up the teaching. He summed it up <clears throat> in three words. Whatever arises, ceases. Okay? That was his takeaway. Whatever arises, ceases. And it's terribly important, actually. You know, it's a very cryptic esoteric summary, summary, if you like, of that teaching. 
but it's a really interesting and important take on it. <coughs> so, what was the Buddha doing here? He wasn't offering us revelations about the other world. He wasn't telling us about God or angels or where the world came from or how it would end. He wasn't telling us anything like that. He was telling us stuff that uh, he was telling these five characters who represented us at the time, uh, something that everybody can experience themselves. He was simply saying, look at your experience. Look at, look, try looking at it like this. And he even got these five dogmatists with their really close minds to say, okay, yeah, I can see that. Uh, that checks out with, uh, with what I know from my own experience of uh, being a human being with this body and these, uh, these um, feelings and faculties and so on. So um, the human condition you can think of as uh, the tiger we have to ride. And um, so what the Buddha, I think, is really saying is ride that tiger um, and, and avoid the really silly ways of falling off because when you fall off the tiger, very unpleasant things happen. So let's leave it at that. I'm six minutes over. And um, we'll have a cup. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.